just trying to compensate for my smart aleck remark. That was nice of you, Steve. Thank you. Excellent. Some of you know, um, a couple weekends ago, we had our four, four of our grandchildren, not our four, we had four of them here, and we had them all weekend. And uh, I, told some, I told some of you this at the end of the weekend. I asked Nancy, when I was in my doctoral program and, and I was gone every day and every night, we had four children at home, was this what it was like for you? And she says, better late than never. <laughs> so the first night, we had the kids go out and brush your teeth. And so I uh, went to them, and I said, so do you guys want to brush your teeth? Yep. Ready for bed? Yep. Okay. Let me go check and make sure the toothbrushes are wet. And my seven-year-old grandson said, Papa, my toothbrush dries really fast. (laughs) We have a word for that in our language called lying. (laughs) So I brought him down and told Nancy what happened. I said, he needs a good grandma lecture. So uh, Nancy was able to give him a good grandma lecture on lying and trust and all that. So uh, the second night, <clears throat> he's going up the stairs, and I said, so are you going to brush your teeth? Well, I'm going to brush my teeth. You can come watch, or you can install surveillance cameras. <laughs> what a world our young ones are being brought up in. More about that later in the sermon. On the back of your bulletin, there's several things here that are important. One is we have a family night this coming Friday. And let me remind you that a lot of the things that we do are designed to bring our people together in different experiences, especially the generations. And I know that some of you, uh, several of you already have children who are grown. And don't tune out this when I say family night. Think about coming to this and seeing our young families. You don't have to stay very long. You can just check in and say hi to them, and it's a real encouragement to to them. We have lots of young families that are part of this. So think about doing that. If you have never never done it, it's just a blast to stop in. Second thing is we have an affirmation class coming up uh, next Sunday, February 17th. Mark teaches that. And um, I know that some of you, again, have children that are already grown. Don't tune out. Listen to this. This is a very important class that we do. This is where Mark sits down with many of our young children and talks to them about the things that we do as a church. We've said all along that a ritual done well brings Christ into our world, and a ritual done poorly shields us from the truth. And this is where he talks to them about such things as baptism, communion. Why do we do what we do? And so my, my desire from you is that you would pray for these children, because this is the future of our church. One of these days I'll be gone, and you will be too, but these children won't be. And so just pray for them throughout the week as you remember. This is a very important part of their journey. And then also, it's back actually in the calendar, but tonight we have Pub Theology. You can look back there later. I mean, in the calendar if you want to see when it is. Um, Pub Theology, where we just get together and talk about, well, whatever everybody wants to talk about. (laughs) All right, I'd like to start by praying for um, Haiti. What's going on in Haiti? Uh, What's going on in Haiti is representative of what's going on in other parts of the world, but there's lots of riots and rebellions and things like that, and it's been making the news pretty regularly. People are just tired of the corruption, what they consider corruption and greed. Uh, They're so dirt poor. And um, I have to admit, I, I sympathize a little bit, having been there with them. So let's stop and pray for them. Father, we do lift up this nation to you, uh, Haiti. Uh, this island of people that in some respects are so very, very poor, and yet they see their, their 
politicians around them being corrupt and greedy. Lord, I don't know how much of that's real and how much is perceived. I'm sure some of it's real. You know that. But I know that they're just tired and they're weary. And it reminds me, as you said, that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And right now, there's a whole group, a whole lot of people that are just rebelling more and more. Father, I pray that you would be with them and that you would turn the hearts of those politicians and their leaders in their country, that you would turn the hearts back to the people and uh, you would calm it down and you would help them to be motivated to love their people and to help their people um, come to a better place in life. Thank you. Thank you for watching over all of our nations and um, just for who you are. And help us today as we jump more into holiness and look at the heart condition a little bit. And I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom as we step into it. And uh, that you would guide us uh, through this discussion today. In your son's name, amen. Okay, so we're in a series on holiness, as you know. And um, I've asked the question in many ways, numerous ways. Um, do you see holiness? When I mention the word holy or holiness, is there a part of you that just kind of feels uh, burdened uh, because more rules and more ways of living? Or do you think of it as an invitation? Hopefully by now in this series, I'm winning you all over to my side. That holiness is an invitation into a, a deeper walk with the Lord, an intimate relationship with Him. Hopefully that's what you're getting out of it. So let me just give you a short summary of where we've come to set the stage for today. The Old Testament teaches us that God's goal for human life is that we should live in fellowship with Him. It's interesting to me, you know how I like to use the stage, Old Testament over here, New Testament over there, it's a timeline, that it's interesting to me how many people um, have never read the law. One of the comments I've been getting feedback on is I've made the comment that the law was not obscure, nor was it difficult. We may not understand it, but it's neither of those. For many of you, the law is an academic exercise. You've heard it preached some, but you've never actually read it. I would encourage you to grab one of the chapters in Exodus or Leviticus and just read it. You know, uh, and just read it and ask yourself the question, are these hard to obey? That wasn't the problem, was it? This is the problem. It wasn't the law. You know, when I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching in the Gospels, one of the questions that comes up has to do with the Gospel of Thomas. How many of you have heard of the Gospel of Thomas? You heard of it? Let me see. Gospel of Thomas? How many of you have heard that term? Okay, it's a gospel that was found, uh, on, uh, ostensibly under the, written by Thomas. One of the questions that comes up is, how come we don't have the gospel of Thomas? How come there's not five gospels? Who gave the church the authority to pick four, not the fifth one? That's a question I get challenged with often. And I say, okay, I will read you a verse out of the gospel of Thomas, and you get to be the judge. Um, so I go get my gospel of Thomas, and here's one of the verses. Peter says to Jesus, what do we do about Mary since she's a woman and can't inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, you're right, I know. So I'm going to change her into a man so that she can inherit the kingdom of God. How many of you want that verse in your Bible? It's no longer academic when you actually read it. Now you can understand why the early church said, yeah, four in, one out. It becomes very clear when you start actually reading it. So I would encourage you to pick up your Bibles and just sometime take a verse, take a chapter out of Exodus, Leviticus, and just read it. 
and ask yourself the question. You may not understand the law. I understand that. There's whole places where you're going to go, why did God do that? I get that. But read it and say, was it obscure? Was it confusing? Or was it clear? You're going to find it's clear. And then was it difficult or could we obey it? It could be obeyed. That's not the problem. Problem's here. That's where the problem is. That's why we've immersed ourselves so much in the Old Testament because the Old Testament concept of holiness is no different than the New Testament concept. They're identical. They're exactly the same. And that's what we're going to get into today a little bit. But we also learn that God is not of this world. He is God and we are not. And we need to be reminded of that regularly. God is God. He is holy other, theologians call it. That's why he's the only one that can truly be called holy. He is different than us in every respect. So when we got into the early stages of looking at the covenant, which we call the law, um, first five books of the Old Testament, pretty much, that we decided, we discovered that it reveals his character. So the covenant reveals who he is and his holiness. And um, I use the example several times that if I step into your home or your marriage or your workplace, doesn't matter, I can learn very quickly what your character is like. It's very easy. Is your home characterized by grace, love? Is it harsh, demanding? Your marriage, is it gracious? Is it, is it fluid? Is it relational? Is it harsh? Is it judgmental? When you're in the workplace, do you, uh, can your employees see the love of Christ? Either if they're fellow employees or your employees who work for you? Do they see the love of Christ? Do they see the affections and the graciousness of, with which Christ calls us to live life? Or do they see harshness, a demanding person? So I can look in your, I can step into your life and really quickly get a sense of your character. The law is no different. The law is no different. We've talked about how God, he always precedes a covenant with his love and grace first. He rescued the people and redeemed them before he gave them the law. So the law was written for people who are already his followers, who already were in a relationship with him, not the other way around. The law was not the means of finding grace before the Lord. That's not what it was about. They already found that in the Exodus. In every other place, the covenant has come. So the covenant reveals his character. But we also, last week, we looked at the true nature of us is also revealed in the the covenant as well. So the moment Scripture reveals a holy God, it reveals a sinful people. They go together. You can't have one without the other. So as the covenant taught the people, the character of God, it also taught them, the Israelites, their own character. We said last week that the problem is internal. It's the heart. I left you with the question that, okay, if the problem is a heart and it's impossible to keep, which they found, and they were sinning in every step of the way, that's what the book of Numbers is all about, the wandering. If that's the case, then how is it David is called a man after God's own heart? How is it Moses is called the most faithful man on the, the earth? 
how that happened. We're going to begin to wrestle with it today. So I've called this sermon an impure heart, but really what we're going to do is we're going to look at the effects of the impure heart and what does God really expect of us. So the problem is internal. We learn by looking at the Old Testament, and it confirms our experience today, that there is something inside of us that works against our best effort to live the life God has called us to live. Paul's going to deal with that in a very powerful way in Romans 7. We'll get to that. But there is something inside of us, and they they knew that. They just couldn't keep it. Neither can you, by the way. They couldn't keep it. That's what we learned. Our imagination always runs towards, toward the perverse. It runs toward the, the uh, pornographic, the horrible, the corrupt. That's where we naturally go without discipline and without following the Lord. That's what a fallen world is all about. That's what they mean by total depravity. There's not one single molecule in you that moves in the right direction. By the way, it's true of culture. There's no example of culture apart from Christian influence that turns us toward the good. It always takes us off the cliff. Always. Lots of studies have been done to argue against that and have been proven wrong. Culture always takes us in the wrong direction. Apart from Christian influence. Had a discussion with the high schoolers recently um, about can we legitimize murder or can we legitimize morality? I mean, they said, no, you can't, of course not. I said, well, then let's get rid of the murder laws. That was a trap, by the way. <laughs> One of the very astute teenagers said, but I don't think legislating, legislating murder is the same as legislating morality. And I said, why is that? And he said, because it seems like if you legislate morality, you are changing people's thinking. I'm not sure anybody's thinking is different about murder. You're either going to murder or you're not. Brilliant. Smarter than all of you. (laughs) Our wonderful teenagers. And I said, okay, well then, would it be fair to say you can legislate behavior, but you can't legislate morality? And they said, yes then how does morality come into the world discussion? That's how. Right here. You'll never think it up. What seems natural to you came about because someone before us put in place teaching and laws that we all hold to. That's how morality develops comes into world culture. And we learn all that when we begin to look at this. The fundamental human problem is not ignorance, as many world, as all worldviews and philosophies say. That's not the fundamental world, uh, problem, ignorance. The fundamental problem is the heart. You can teach all you want, and it doesn't get any better. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. So, we also learned... God's ultimate desire for humanity is fellowship with him. The most immediate result of the Exodus event and the covenant at Mount Sinai, which we looked at, Exodus 19 on, the most immediate result was the possibility of fellowship with this one true God. That was the most immediate result. If you obey me fully, you will be my people. I will be your God. No other God ever said that. And so that was the most immediate result. Now, 
immediately following those four or five chapters where God kind of lays out the introduction to the covenant, he starts talking about the tabernacle. If you've ever read the chapters on the tabernacle, you usually fall asleep within about half of the first chapter. So many colors, so many shapes, so many measurements, which you don't even understand, right? All these descriptions of details. And you know, you miss the point when you get bogged down in the details. The point is that God wants to live in the presence of his people. That's why the very next thing he talks about is the tabernacle. He wants to live in the presence of his people. So you're all slaves and you've been brought out of Egypt and you find out that you're serving a God who is alive and he cares about you. He rescued you and he wants you to build a temple or a tabernacle. Would you want to build the best one possible? You would, wouldn't you? And that's what all those chapters are about. Building the best tabernacle possible. Gold and purple and all of these colors are involved. Those deep important because it was the house. It was the best tent in all of Israel. They were excited because they could serve their God. In fact, when they took an offering to pay for everything, treasuries overflowed. Hint, hint. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You guys are always gracious and generous. <laughs> it overflowed and they were able to, they donated the gold and everything to build it. They wanted to build the best house, the best tabernacle, the best tent for their God. And because they were excited that he wanted to live in their presence. That's not what they got from the Egyptian pantheon of gods. He wanted to live with them. So that's right off, right off the bat. That's what's happening in, in the law. In the covenant. Now, while that's happening, Moses is up on the mountain getting this description of what the tabernacle is going to look like. What are the people doing? They don't have the Old Testament yet. Moses is up getting it. They go to Aaron. We don't know about this fellow Moses. He's been gone for a month. We don't know where he is. So... Build us a God that we can worship. They resorted right back to what they were used to. So Aaron takes all the gold, which was going to be used for the tabernacle, and builds a golden calf. You know that story, right? He builds a golden calf. So Moses is up on the mountain, and God says, uh, you better go back down because I'm about to destroy all those people. I love it when God says that to Moses because he and Moses get in an argument. And Moses often reminds him, they're not my people, they're your people. <laughs> And if you kill them now, then all the other nations are going to go, uh-huh, some God you have. He just took you out of Egypt so he could wipe all of you off the face of the earth. Right? So God says, okay, go down and take care of it. It's a problem. So he goes down, and the first thing he does, he goes to Aaron, and he goes, what were you thinking? Now, it's a mixture of good and bad, because Aaron says, when he builds a golden calf, tomorrow get up, and we will, we will get up and worship Yahweh. He's resorting to what they all knew how to do. An idol worship. That's not what God wants. So Moses comes in and says, What were you thinking? And Aaron, I just love his response. Uh, I threw all the gold into fire and this thing just came out. My toothbrush dries faster than everybody else's. <laughs> yeah, it's part of our history, isn't it? <laughs> Every one of us. And it was threatened. It was threatened. Here's why it was threatened. God's presence. Because God had designed it so the nation would be four tribes, 12 tribes, four on each side. 
And the tabernacle would be right in the middle, symbolizing his presence with them. So God says to Moses, I'm not going to the promised land with you. So I'm going to read the beginning of Exodus 33, and in just a minute I'll have her put up a different verse. Exodus 33, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham. Verse 3, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are stiff-necked people. That's how I feel about you guys sometimes. You know, I'm teasing. I'm not going to go up with you. And Moses says, you can't do that. You can't do that. Look in verse 15. This will be up on the screen. Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, don't even send us up. Don't even send us up. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So the golden calf incident revealed that there is a very real potential when sin comes that God's presence would step away. So Moses wrestles with God and God says, okay, then here's what I'm going to do. I'll go with you, but I'm not going to go up in your So here are the uh, 12 nations, four on each side. The temple in the middle, the tabernacle in the middle, it's empty. He said, I want you to set mine out on the horizon as a reminder to the people that they sinned. Now, we know today that God is with us all the time, but they didn't know that. So this is like how you teach a child. He put his tent out on the horizon. And it says every time Moses went out to meet with them, the people stood at the entrance to their tents and they're watching. You know? Said they mourned. They were sorrowful because God didn't go up in their midst. He's teaching them a lesson. Don't mess with God. That's what he's saying. Don't mess with God. This is one of the core stories of the Old Testament. Don't mess with God. Powerful statement, isn't it? All the stories from here on out are with his tent over there and ours over here. So Moses asked the question, what good is the promised land without God? It's not good at all. We need God with us. So this raises the question, if the Israelites failed so drastically, does God, can God really expect God-like character? Can he? If it was impossible to keep. Not because of the law, but because of something inside of us. And we'll get to that in the New Testament. If it's impossible to keep, is, can God, is, he, is it appropriate that he would ask that? Paul asked that question in Romans 7. And the answer is yes. Leviticus reveals that fellowship with God is only possible for those who have a godly character. So the answer is yes. God's not going to ask you something that can't be done. So what's the problem? Or more appropriately then, how can you keep it? In a way that honors the Lord. That's what the Old Testament from here on out begins to address. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to give you two concepts of it. There are two Old Testament concepts that I think help us understand God's expectations of us and prepares us for the New Testament work of the Messiah, the coming Messiah Jesus. 
The first one is what, what we call the concept of perfection. That's a word that's used all throughout the Old Testament. It's also all used all throughout the New Testament as well. The word perfection. The Hebrew word uh, has, has different cognates, just like all, of, all words do. Every word has a range of meaning with lots of ideas around it and nuances. This is no different. The core meaning from which all the nuances flow is, has to do with without blemish. You've heard that term, without blemish. They had to offer an animal without blemish. Now, the very first question we could ask is, is there ever a perfect animal? No. So then what does that mean, without blemish? When we talk about without blemish, we're talking about human behavior that is without fault. So I asked last week, this is how I finish it, how can David be called a man after God's own heart? On on and on and on. So I'm going to show you four simple ways this word is used. There's plenty more, but these are with characters that we know. The first one is in Genesis 6, verse 9 with Noah. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless, there's that word, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. The second one is Abraham. This is a short time later, Genesis 17. God approaches Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. There's that word again. The third one is Job, which is parallel to Abraham, Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless... There's the word, an upright, without blemish. He feared God and shunned evil. And Job, if you're familiar with the whole story, he has his three friends who sit with him for a year and give him counsel to help him try to make sense of it. At the end of that time, uh, even though Job gets angry with God, even though he argues with God, he gets angry and yells at God, at the end, God blesses Job and says to the three friends, uh, I'm going to have Job offer a sacrifice, otherwise I will kill you. The lesson we learn from that is be very careful what advice you give to your friends. Okay? They thought they were wise and they weren't. The last one is Psalm 101, and this is David. We know David's story. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. There's many more. I just picked four that you know, four that are familiar. So, the, the Old Testament clearly knows the possibility of unblemished behavior. What does it mean by that? It's behavior which is everything that could possibly be expected from us. And perfection is not one of those. David goes on a little bit later in Second Samuel and says that it is God who makes his way blameless. Here it is translated secure. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure or keeps my way blameless. And we know, what do we know about David? He was an adulterer, a liar, a murderer. How could he possibly say such a thing? And why would God refer to him as a man after his own heart? You see, David is not necessarily saying that everything he does, um, that he does everything right. Clearly he did not. Did he? must have something else in mind. What he is saying is that God has made it possible for him to serve God with complete integrity. Not perfection. Not the way we think of it. He's able to serve God with complete integrity. He is serving out of a genuine desire 
to serve for God's sake, not out of perverse motives. So if you read the Psalms, especially Psalm 51, when he's confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, you find one of the most repentant hearts ever recorded in Scripture. Saul never did that. King Saul. David always responded, I am wrong. That's integrity. Saul always made excuses. That's what's behind this concept. His behavior, although sinful at times, is what God called unblemished. It was all that God expected of him in terms of motivation. I think it's the difference, here's how I phrase it, between sin out of weakness and sin out of rebellion. When you read the first seven chapters of Leviticus, especially the sin sacrifices, those are all about sacrifices, guess what you see? Every sin sacrifice says, if anyone sins unintentionally, here's what they're to do. Unintentionally. Then all of a sudden in Numbers, Numbers 10, they head out to start wandering. And a little bit later in about Numbers God, I'm thinking about the law. I'm dramatizing a little bit. And uh, I don't see any sacrifice for those who sin intentionally. In Hebrew, those who shake their fist at you, the hell with you, God. I don't see any sacrifice for that. And God says there is no sacrifice for that. Those people are to be cut off. We're going to see that language appear again in the New Testament. They're to be cut off. Achan stole the things under the ban at Ai. And when they finally figured to cast lots and got down to his tent, they didn't say go offer a sacrifice. They recognized that that was sin out of rebellion. And they executed him. We often live with sin that comes out of weakness, not rebellion. There's the difference. This is capturing the idea of a heart devoted to God with integrity. And when you are confronted with your sin, like David, you say, I was wrong, rather than make excuses. By the way, when this word is used of God, I think it's saying the same thing. It's not talking about um, his performance. It's talking about his motivation of selfless love. Now, God is always perfect, so that's always true as well. But when this particular word group is used of God, it's talking about a motivation of why he moves toward us the way he does. And that's what he's asking us to do, to be truly people of integrity inside of our hearts. Not to be perfect. The second concept is that what we call well-being. You've heard this term, shalom, has the idea of peace, right? That word group is very complex and very large. It has the idea of peace, well-being, wholeness, completeness. But one of the common uses of this word has to do with a unified, a complete, and undivided heart where we are all together. So the first example of that is 1 Chronicles 38. First Chronicles twelve thirty eight, And these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. So Israel was unified in making David king. This is one of the word groups, the understanding of this word. Now, David, a little bit later on, he's going to charge Solomon in, verse, in chapter 28. 
And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with a wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. There it is, wholehearted devotion. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will reject you. So he charged Solomon to serve the Lord with an undivided heart. One chapter later, he prays for Solomon. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees. Okay? Wholehearted. This is, so these two ideas, this idea of perfection or integrity and unity, these are the two things that God is expecting of his people when he, when he looks more deeply into their, their heart and their character. So last week we saw that the human heart easily, easily led astray. Um, what does it look like to develop a whole heart, a unified heart of devotion to God? Again, I'm going to read something from Oswalt here. He's talking about these two, cha- these two verses. He asks the question, what is the character of this wholeheartedness? What is it? We need to be very careful here because of the primarily sentimental connotations of heart in modern English. It's very easy to conclude that what is being talked about here is great enthusiasm for God or great excitement about our spiritual growth or something of that sort. These two passages make it quite clear that this is not what David is talking about at all. To have a perfect heart toward God is to obey his covenant stipulations, to make him the absolute Lord of our lives. To make him the absolute Lord of our lives. To submit to his will. Okay, now listen to this. To call sin what he calls sin. That's a challenge for us today. The older generation was taught to obey the Bible. They asked the question, what does the Bible say? The younger generation says, I don't know if I agree with the Bible. Why does the Bible say it? And they're blessing our church by asking that question because we need to be able to answer the question, why did God say it? Even if we don't understand it, though, are we willing to call sin what God calls sin or are we willing to sit in judgment on God? That's the core question being asked on a heart wholly devoted to the Lord. If the Lord says, Sexual immorality outside of marriage. I don't care if it's premarital sex, friends with benefits. I don't care what it is. If we're not willing to call that sin, then we are sitting in judgment on God who clearly calls it sin. You understand? This is what's behind this idea. Are we willing to call sin what he calls sin? Are we willing to call righteousness what he calls righteousness? Are we willing to view people as he views people? I've said all along, the greatest gift God can give your worst enemy is to route them into your life because you're the one person that can show them love and grace and surprise them. Or you can be human and be angry and take vengeance. That's human. It's not redeemed human, but it's human. So if you really have a heart devoted to the Lord with integrity, and a desire to follow him, then the greatest gift God can give your enemy is to route them right into your presence because they're going to experience something they've never experienced, love and forgiveness. Being wholeheartedly God's has much less to do with how we feel about God than it does with letting him slash out of our lives 
everything, everything which stands as a rival to him so that he can fill our lives with himself and transform the very way we image reality. Okay. Isaiah captures this beautifully in Isaiah chapter 1. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lands of goats. Elsewhere, he says, I hate your sacrifices. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. A short, very short time later, he says, because if you don't, their cry will reach my ears and I will kill you. Don't mess with God. Very strong language about how we are to treat the poor and the oppressed. Don't mess with God. The result of this kind of living, this, this integrity of heart that he's talking about, the very next chapter, Isaiah says it will bring worldwide honor to God in Isaiah 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amaz, says concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days of the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established on the, as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above all the hills and all the nations will stream to it. This is the Abrahamic promises. I will bless all the nations through you. This is what Paul calls the gospel in Galatians 3. Every Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law and the word will go out from Zion. Go out where? To all the nations. This is a glimpse of the new covenant. It's just a glimpse. You see, God does not want obedience. That's not what he wants at all. What he wants is obedience that flows from a heart that is dedicated to him. Anybody can obey the law. That's not what he's after. He's after a heart that's being shaped like his. One final thing. The Old Testament leaves us hanging because this kind of effort is not possible by itself. And he leaves us hanging. And now from here on out, we're going to move into answering that question from here to the rest, all the way to Lent, all the way to Easter. What's missing? That's where we're going to start next week. This is the God that we serve. So I want to leave you with this question. We're going to come back to it. Are you willing to trust God even if you don't agree or understand? That's a statement of the heart. Are you willing to trust Him even if you don't agree? Even if you don't understand why? Father, thank you for for your holiness. Thank you that with your holiness, you have invited us into a deeper relationship with you, a relationship that will bring us overflowing joy. Joy 
beyond our wildest expectations. Thank you for being God. In your son's name, amen. Can I ask, just stop and say,